0: Good morning, College Park. Our scripture reading today comes from Romans 5:12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if the abundance For if the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law that came into increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of our Lord.
1: Father in heaven, we thank you that we have the privilege of examining this text today that our hearts might be driven more to what it means to have Christ indeed be our life. We thank you for the evident display of change in these baptisms today and we ask now that you would use Romans 5 to emblaze upon our hearts the truth of what it means to be in Christ. Help me to make this passage clear and plain, and would you please apply it to our hearts as only you can do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The very first line of the very first commentary that I read in my study of this passage today was not encouraging at all. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on Romans, writes this. Romans 512 to 21 is one of the most difficult and controversial passages to interpret in all of Pauline literature. It's not a good way to start your study session. Only worse is the fact that just moments earlier, one of our staff guys had emailed me and said, hey, just so you know, you're going to try in one sermon what took Piper seven weeks. So that wasn't encouraging. And then when I was reading through my favorite author, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he has a book on Romans chapter 5, and I found this great uh, chapter on verses 15 to 21. I was like, wonderful. And then I found 14 more that went along with that. So needless to say, I come to you today a bit uh intimidated with this text and yet what I want to do is try and help you understand what is here. Hard texts are in the Bible because they are there to try and answer complex questions. It takes a lot of effort to wrestle texts like this to the ground and I hope to be able to give you the sense of what I believe is happening here. My hope, though, is that today this message will help spur you on, perhaps even to think more, read more, and respond more to what God is saying in Romans 5. There'll be a a blog post this week by one of our staff guys, and you can um, serve, it can serve as a guide to you to do some further reading, and I hope you will take that challenge. I'm one of those people that needs to understand the whole to understand a part. For instance, when I'm driving, I need to know where north is. Last night I was coming from northern Carmel over at our house on the northwest side, and I came through the construction zone of US-31. It's part of the brokenness of the world, is what that is. <laughs> I, was just like, I was like, honey, where in the world are we? It was just like, I'll turn here. I'm like, here? And I couldn't see anything, and... That was awful. I need to know where north is. And so what I want to do is try and help you understand what is north in this passage or, or what is the main thing that Paul is doing. So let me just give you an overarching summary of the message of Romans 5, 12-21, tell you where this is going so that when we get into the details, you don't panic and just like, we're lost. We aren't lost. We, 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 we may feel like it, but we're not. Romans 5, 12-21, the text is a conclusion to what it means to be saved by the life of Christ in Romans 5 and verse 10. So we're coming here to the conclusion of what does it mean when the text says we are saved by Christ's life. So Paul's going to explain that. Secondly, what the passage does is it sets up an important comparison and a contrast between Adam and Christ in order to show us what is the difference between being in Adam and what is the difference between being in Christ? So he's going to set that up. You can see that all throughout the text. And finally, and, and this, if you're taking notes, or underline this in the manuscript, the main point of the passage is this, that what Christ has done for all those who are in Him is far greater than what Adam did for those who were in Him. Let me restate that. What Christ has done for all those who are in him is far greater than what Adam did for all who were in him. So it's a contrast between Adam and Christ. So Paul is going to help us to see that there are two categories of people. There are two categories of people in this room today. On the one hand, we have people who are in Adam, and we have those who are in Christ. And it's really important for you to know... Whether or not you're in Adam or whether you're in Christ. And I hope that today there'll be some of you who will make the jump from being in Adam to being in Christ. That your testimony could be like those that you heard already this morning. That I was lost but I was found. I've come to realize that God is holy. I'm not. Jesus saves in Christ is my life. That's, that's the transfer of in Adam to in Christ. We're going to look at this in two ways. First, verses 12 to 14 we're going to see Adam's trespass and ours that's the first section and then in verses 15 to 21 we're going to see Christ's triumph which then is also ours so there's there's two ways that we're going to look at this and the main idea or the main thought that we're trying to get to is how does Christ's work his triumph result in the conquering of sin and death and then what does that mean So what has Christ done for those who are in him, and how is it greater than what Adam has done for those who are in him? So first, Adam's trespass and ours. So we are natural-born sinners. We are in Adam. So we begin by looking at Adam and sin and death. And Paul talks about this matter of sin and death in Adam, not only because they are problematic, but also because sin and death threaten to squash the hope of believers as they look towards the future. And Romans chapter 5 is all about hope. It's about hope of the gospel. It's about the hope of being justified by faith. It's about the hope of having peace with God. It's about hope in the midst of suffering. And remember, this is the foothills of what will come in the great summit in Romans chapter 8. And we live in a real world that has sin and death in it. And so the question is, so how do we live now in a realm controlled by sin and death in light of this Christ-bought triumph? And that will then lead us into Romans chapter 6, where we will see very practically how we are to live this out. Verse 12 is the main point. Verses 13 and 14 are a parenthetical thought. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The point is that sin and death came into the world through Adam, and the effect of of Adam's actions was the spreading of death and sin to the entire human race. Then verses 13 and 14 are a parenthetical thought where Paul is attempting to answer the question, so could people really be guilty of sin if there wasn't an official law? Assuming that in this question is the idea that God doesn't really judge people or hold them accountable if they don't even know about the law that they're breaking, does he? And Paul would say, no, absolutely he does. And he would say that between Adam and Moses, there was no giving of the law, and yet people still died. Why? Because they were still guilty, even though they didn't have the written law to verify their guilt. In other words, the guilt of humanity is not just because we do wrong things. We are guilty because we are human beings. Because we're in Adam, that's the point. And then verse 14, he identifies that Adam is a type of another kind of person who will do something even better than what he did. So what do we learn about Adam and our trespasses in verses 12 to 14? There's five things. Here's the first one. The first is in verse 12 where we see that sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam. Essentially the story of the Bible is that in the very beginning, in Genesis 1 to 3... We find that God created the world, including human beings, in a perfect, holy, and sinless state. That fellowship with God in that original moment was unbroken because God, in His holiness, was still in perfect harmony with His creation. And yet there was only one restriction. And that one restriction to Adam and Eve was, they should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they violated that command, when they broke that one restriction, they fell into sin, Eve sinned, Adam sinned, and the entire created order fell into sin. According to verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man. So sin entered the world through Adam's actions. Here's the second thing. Not only sin came into the world through one man, but death also followed. Death came into the world, verse 12, and death through sin. So the effect is that death comes through the reality of sin in the world, that sin and death are tragically linked together. Now when I say the word death, at one level you could think about it as physical death, because that is certainly implied. But death in the Bible means more than just physical death. It means eternal death. But it also means the realm of anti-God that exists in the world. This, this death is separation, it's enmity, it's alienation. It's what Adam and Eve experienced when they were cast out of the garden. They were alive, but they were dead. They were going to die physically, and if a remedy had not been made for their sins, they would have died eternally, in eternal torment in hell. But the reality was, even in that very moment, the realm of death had come to the earth, And as a result, they were separated, they were alienated, they were then God's enemies. So when you see death in the Bible, you have to see it as more than physical. You you can think of it like the word dark. I mean, dark is where there is no light. So before the sun came up, it was dark outside. And yet we use the word dark to mean more than just the absence of light. If you read something that's in the realm of death, so to speak, you might say, boy, that's really dark. Dark. And you don't mean no light, like no physical light. You mean that there's something about this that just seems wrong or broken. That's how the word death is used in the Bible. It refers not only to alienation and separation from God. It refers not only to physical death and even spiritual death, but it also is the realm that is in enmity against God. It's it's the realm that is anti-God. So sin comes into the world, verse 12. Death spreads through sin, and then... Third here, look at verse 12. So death spread to all men because all sinned. This text moves from just focusing on Adam to helping us understand how the entire human race was affected. You see, the Garden of Eden trespass that Adam committed resulted not only in death for Adam or the entrance of death into the world, but the text says death spreads to all men because all sinned what does that mean all sinned it means that somehow we were connected to Adam's sin so that the entire human race was affected there's a couple different ways to see this one is called the seminal headship or the natural headship and it posits that we all sinned in Adam because he was the father of all of us biologically and so biologically his sin has been passed along to all of us and that's one view it's not mine I think The right view, my perspective on it, is what's called the federal headship. And that means that Adam served as our representative. True, we are all there biologically, but sin is more than just biology. There's something involved here that relates to God imputing Adam's transgression to all of us. That the entire human race fell. And this idea of representation is really important throughout the Bible. So when Adam sinned, his guilt was then counted to all of humanity. When Adam sinned, God considered the entire human race to have sinned. When he fell, everyone fell, because he was the representative. Now, some of you are, might be thinking in the back of your mind, well, how is that fair? And that's a good question. How is it fair that Adam represented me? And, and my push on that if would be this... Do you really think that you would not have sinned in the garden? I mean, really? Do you, just just ask a friend, right? Do you think? No, no, no. no. You'd you blow it. Like ten minutes, it's over, you know? So, Secondly, if you protest too loudly, if you say something like, I don't agree that the actions of a historical person that I wasn't involved in could be applied to me. I don't like that. I reject that. Well... In the New Testament, the actions of a historical person, namely Jesus, that you had nothing to do with were applied to you, so you can't have your theological cake and eat it too, right? The reality is representation is a very important concept in the Bible, and it means that Christ represented us as dying on the cross such that God counts His death as sufficient for those who believed in Him in the same way that Adam sinned as the representative of the entire human race. So be careful if you protest too loudly about being treated unfairly through representation because that is the essence of the gospel message. Fourth, so sin came into the world, death comes through sin, death spreads to all men. Fourth, sin is real even when the law is not written. Here's the parenthetical thought. It says, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. That's his main point. And the question is is simply this, are people really guilty if they don't actually violate a written law? Are they guilty because they're human or are they guilty because they do bad things? That's, That's the question in play. And then that's why Paul says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. He's not saying that's actually true. He's saying that's what you would think. And yet he says, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. See, his point is this, is that sin and guilt and being guilty of God's judgment doesn't come just from the things that we do. It comes from who we are. The things that we do are an expression of who we are. That who we are, we are in Adam. We are natural born sinners. We come into the world in Adam. That people in their natural state are in a state of enmity against God because of the fact that the whole human race has fallen into sin. So we don't become sinners by sinning. We sin because we are sinners. you understand that? That's a very important idea. That we are guilty because we are human. We're not guilty just because we have sinned so sin is real even when the law is not written and fifth the text also tells us that Adam was a type of one who was to come the last statement here serves as a foreshadowing of what will come and what we'll see in verses 15 to 21 and what Paul does here is he sets up a contrast between Adam and Christ I mean, one of the ways to examine something is just to talk about the thing so he could just talk about christ and it would be helpful and glorious but by comparing him to adam it makes it even more clear and 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 frankly more attractive it, it it sheds light on it in a whole new way let me let me illustrate this if i can how many of you in your lifetime have had more than one dog let me see your hands and how many of you, putting your hands down, would say, of those two dogs, there was one that was better than the other? Let me see your hands. All right. This is the case in our home, and our children do not understand this. Okay? We have a dog. Her name is Libby. She's a large dog, about 70 pounds, some crazy mixture of Weimreiner and Shepherd and Lab. Those, those genes that mix do not produce smart animals, and... <laughs> So while she has a 70-pound body, she has, I, I think, the brain of a chipmunk, and yet, and the, but the emotions of a very small child. And so it's very, it's a, it's a very challenging time in our home during certain situations because at one level she's, she's not smart at all. Like, like we I, I just a couple days ago I, I had a stick and I was like Libby, fetch, and I threw it, and she literally sat there, looked at me, looked at the stick, and looked back at me like, why are you throwing things? And I, and I wanted to tell her, because you're a dog. You're supposed to go fetch. Doesn't, under, doesn't understand that. So my kids love Libby. In fact, the, the reason why Libby is in our home is because my kids love her. Libby doesn't know that that question might arise when they leave. What's going to happen <laughs> to Libby? But that's beside the point. Just shh on that one. So I love the dog. Let me be clear, because my, my kids may listen online. They, you don't love Libby? I love Libby. But here's the problem. But Libby is not like Sadie. Sadie was the first baby before there were any babies. She, she was there before the kids were there. S- Sadie, I, I trained her to be a hunting dog, even though I don't hunt. I just wanted the, 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 the fun of having her go chase a stick. She could do commands back and forth in the water. I mean, Libby doesn't even want to get her paws wet. Sadie would jump in the water and go after a Frisbee. I could give her a rock, and I could put my hand and rub it my hand and throw it in the weeds, and she would actually bring back the same rock to me. I mean, she's an amazingly intelligent dog. So if I describe Libby to my kids, that's one thing. But if I describe Libby in light of Sadie, the color difference, not the physical color, but the, the relational color, the attractiveness color, the intelligence color becomes clear. And my kids don't understand the difference because they really didn't experience both. And when you experience both, you can see one in comparison to the other. And that's what Paul does here. He, he, he takes Adam... And he lays them up right here, and then he puts Christ, not just to show how they're parallel, because they are, but also because in that comparison you see something even more glorious. So it's one thing to talk about Christ, but it's another to talk about the difference between being in Christ and being in Adam. So with with that framework, let's now move to verses 15 to 21, and we're going to see not only Adam's failure or Adam's trespass, but also now Christ's triumph in verses 15 to 21. Remember the main point of the text. Don't lose the true north, which is this. What Christ has done for all who are in Him is greater than what Adam did for all who were in Him. This idea of being in Christ is incredibly important. Verse 15 gives us the main thought. It says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So here we have the principle. And the principle is this, that many died through one man's trespass much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. In other words, that Jesus reversed Adam's failure. So Adam and being in him brings separation and destruction, while being in Christ brings reconciliation and restoration. That's really important that you understand these two categories. It's, It's important because, first and foremost, if you're here today and... You haven't made the decision about whether or not you're going to be a follower of Jesus. You need to know that Christianity gives you a category that you wouldn't have and you won't have until you become a Christian. Let me explain this. It means the Bible tells us that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And the Bible answers the question as to why do people do really bad things? And if you're, if you're here and you're wondering, so where does evil come from and and why do I desire to do the wrong things? Even though I know that I shouldn't do this and even though I know the consequences of it, I still go back to it. Where does that come from? The Bible says it comes from the, the fall of humanity that what it means to be in Adam. It also means that there is this fallenness that's embedded within the human race. That law cannot contain in and of itself, no matter how many laws you try and put around yourself, no matter how many rules. I mean, there's never been any more laws in the history of the world than what we have today. And yet, are we any more righteous Tomorrow there'll be more laws, and the days after that, more laws. We keep writing more and more and more laws, and I'm not suggesting that we embrace anarchy, but what I am saying is those laws only serve to contain sin, that the ultimate solution for being in Adam, according to this text, is being in Christ. That's the contrast. This also is very helpful if you are a follower of Jesus, that you could see the world through this different lens of in Adam and in Christ. It means that when you encounter people who are in Adam... You ought not be surprised if they act like they're an Adam. I remember at my last church, we had a vacation Bible school. We had a bunch of lost kids in the church. And I got complaints from people because the kids were running around and being loud and breaking things. And, and they were all like, we shouldn't, these kids need to behave. And I'm like, look, they're lost kids. How cool is it that we got lost kids? The problem isn't when they act like this. The problem is when your kids act like this. That's why I moved to Indy. So just kidding. But it's helpful. You hang out at your, uh, maybe your your kid's baseball game, and you hear a dad who's over there yelling at the ump, and he's screaming at him, and you're like, what's he doing? He's in Adam. That's what he's doing. So look at him through compassion. Don't look at him through judgmentalism, but look at him through the lens of compassion. If you're a parent and you have, in your home, you have in Christ children, and you have in Adam children. It helps you to, to see them through a different lens, to realize that children are helpless and powerless to do anything right. And even in your discipline of them, you're doing it not to express your frustration of their in adam but instead to hopefully point them to their need to come to Christ. See, this, this Adam and Christ distinction is so incredibly helpful and important. It's so incredibly gracious. Look at all of the unbelievable words in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. And if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So you get the sense? The sense here is that Christ's triumph is such that His grace has not only been given freely, but His grace has conquered the sinfulness of those who have been in Adam. So if you're a follower of Jesus, it means that Jesus not only rescued you from your sin, He not only pulled you out, listen, He also cleansed you, forgave you, and He gave you a whole new life. Jesus does more than just rescue sinners. He does that. He also restores what is broken. In this respect... The work of Christ is doubly beautiful because it is not only unmerited, but it is also more powerful than the effects of Adam's failure. There's a hymn. Called rock of ages there's a little line in that hymn that is really important and it captures the essence of what i'm talking about rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which float here it comes be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure what's the double cure the double cure is the fact that in christ he not only rescues us from wrath but he also makes us pure It's not only that He saves us from our condemnation, but He also sets us right so that restoration is possible. The double cure is to be saved from wrath and to be made pure. Or as John Calvin said this, Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of Him, we principally receive a double grace. Namely, That being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven instead of a judge, a gracious father. That's incredible. But then there's more. And secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. You see the point? Be to sin be of sin rather the double cure it means that jesus not only saves but he also restores that jesus rescues and he renews he forgives and he changes us he reverses the failure of adam now in verses 16 to 21 there are a series of results and here we see the contrast between christ and adam very clearly there are four contrasts the first is the contrast of justification in christ over condemnation in adam look at verse 16 and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation that's what adam did but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification so here is the example of christ Over and against the example of Adam, Adam's sin brings condemnation, Christ's obedience brings justification. And then we also see it in verse 18. Same idea. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, because it's Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Jesus' obedience makes it possible for a new legal standing to be given. Now, if you're reading that text closely, you you may have a question, wait a minute, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Does that mean that all people are saved in the same way that they're all condemned in Adam? Or there's a, a... an errant or heretical doctrine called universalism that basically says it doesn't matter what you believe or to whom you believe or who you give your allegiance to or what you believe in, at the end of the day, God's going to save everybody. Well, that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is not the sweeping application of both Adam's sin or Christ's obedience. The focus of the passage is what is the means by which they are condemned, and what is the means by which they are justified. So don't get stuck on all men, because later on it says many in verse, I think it's um, 17 or 19. 19 is where it says that. The focus is on the means by which condemnation happens. In other words, to say it more succinctly, Everyone who is condemned is condemned through Adam. And everyone who is justified is justified through Christ. That might be a better way to say it. It doesn't mean that everybody is saved. The rest of the Bible bears that out, that somebody must receive Christ as their Savior. That there's a distinction between being in Adam and in Christ. What he's saying is the means by which condemnation happened was only through Adam. And the means by which one is justified is only through Christ. justification over condemnation secondly here there is life over death look at verse 17 if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man jesus christ so the contrast here is between life and death in one sense he says death reigns and now he says life is reigning the point is this that what jesus does is he not only rescues sinners and saves people from their sin he actually inaugurates restoration in their lives i mean it says in that text they will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The idea is not just future eternal life, it means something about life even now. That there's a sense that even though death is reigning, that life is also reigning in those who have put their faith in Jesus. And, And here's what it means. It means that Jesus has the power, through justification, to not only forgive you of your sins, but also to set you on a pathway of restoration that gives you a new life. So what you need to do for a moment is just dream with me about what could be. If you have marriage troubles, the reality is is that being in Christ and applying the work of Christ and loving the work of Christ and then bearing that out in your marriage means that your marriage troubles could not only be stopped meaning you're not only no longer bickering and fighting and at each other's throat all the time, but you're actually on the other side of the equation. God has not only stopped that behavior, but he's actually made you in love with your mate again, and you're giddy, and you enjoy spending time together, such that your new marriage is not just different than the old, it's totally different than the old. See, it's not just that Jesus makes bad things stop. It's that he gives you a completely different life. That's what it means to be in Christ versus in Adam. If you struggle with addiction, imagine in your life, imagine not only being no longer addicted to the thing that just has you but imagine now being free such that you're not only no longer stuck in that thing but you're actually able to apply god's grace into the lives of other people that you walk away from a conversation knowing you helped deliver somebody else from the same addiction that you were trapped in so it's not just that jesus set you free it's that he set you free so you can be a part of him setting other people free that's life it's life in jesus See, the idea is not just that Jesus rescues us, but that he rescues us to restore us. The story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption through Jesus, and restoration. And God is in the process of restoring all things, and we're waiting for that final day. As we'll see in Romans chapter 6, that final day, while not here yet, there are elements of it that have been inaugurated, and we need to embrace that new day today. And we need to live in light of what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 19. Difference between righteousness and sinfulness. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So again, the contrast here is... A, Difference between being in a condition full of sin and a condition being full of Christ's righteousness. Adam brought sin. Christ brings complete obedience, brings righteousness. And then fourth, the contrast between grace and law. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. So the idea is the law was given, and by identifying specifically what things are right and what things are wrong, It it made sin increase all the more. Where there is no law, you know there's things that you shouldn't do. I mean, if there were no speed limits, you know you shouldn't drive down the highway at 120 miles an hour. This, 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 this This is probably not wise to do. But when they actually define the speed limit as 55 miles an hour, suddenly now, although you know you shouldn't be driving at 120, now 120 seems a lot worse when the speed limit is actually 55. You see, what a law does is it highlights the extent and the scope of sinfulness. Verse 20 says, but where sin increased, so the law comes in, it increases, it clarifies, it it exacerbates what sin really is. He says this, but grace abounded all the more. What a sentence that is. What a statement that is. Grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded because sinful people are declared righteous through the imputed righteousness of Jesus. That God declares people righteous because of the work of Jesus. That's why throughout Romans 5 we've heard things like through Jesus and through Him and through His blood. He, he died for the ungodly. We're saved by Him. We're justified by His blood. We're saved by His life. The point of all these statements is this. That Jesus has given sinful human beings grace if they will receive Him. But even more, He gave them grace that is greater than all their sins. So just think of this with me for a moment. It isn't just that God gave you grace. It's that He gave you grace that is greater than everything you've ever done and are doing or will do. What that means is that if you're in Christ... He didn't just give you grace. He gave you grace that surpassed and conquered and eclipsed everything that you used to be in order so that a new way of living could enter into your life right now. If you understand this, this this could change how you live today. It could help you understand That when difficulties or hardships that come your way, when those things come, they're just part of a brokenness of the world, but at the end of the day, this is this is not the way that things are always going to be. In fact, that's the conclusion that Paul comes to in verse 21. He reaches a crescendo, and here comes the conclusion. Here's why all of chapter 5 is written, So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through jesus christ our lord that is the sum total of romans chapter 5 right there that grace would reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through jesus christ it means that grace reigns now Now how does this relate to the problem of sin and death? It means that when sin and death are in the world and we live in the realm of a world that's ruled by death, death in effect reigns, that in the midst of all of this darkness, there's little pockets of people within this realm of darkness who have experienced the grace of Christ and for them, grace is reigning in the midst of a world that's reigned, that is under the reign and rule of death. It means that their homes and their lives and the way that they think and see the world, that they see everything differently because grace is reigning so that when sin comes our way and our failures come, that we realize even in the broken world, this is not the final word. One day Jesus will come and there will be no more sin and there will be no more struggling. There will be no battling through temptation and eventually Christ will come. But until then, I bank my life on the fact that my sin is not the final word. Jesus is given the final word. When I go to the grave and I have to bury a loved one, And I cry, and I mourn, and I hate the fact that I lose people, and it's not right that death should be in the world. Where is there hope in the midst of that? How How do believers sorrow as those who have hope? It is that they believe that even on this difficult and hard day, death does not reign, grace still reigns, that Jesus has the final word. It means that when people are unkind or don't treat us very nicely and you still choose to treat them graciously and lovingly, you believe that one day Jesus is going to settle all accounts and he'll take everything and make it right and the wrongs that have been done will finally be righted that this injustice that has happened to me right now, while it's awful and terrible and painful, it's not the final word that death does not reign, that grace reigns through Christ. That's what that means. It means that in the midst of all the heartbreaks of life, when we look around us and we think, Oh, God, how could the world be so under the bondage of this reign of death that there are little pockets of people who've come to see? No, 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 grace reigns. They see the beauty of what it means for righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord becomes the means by which they reign in life. It means that grace has the final word. Aren't you so grateful that grace has the final word with all your perfection, imperfections, your past, the challenges, the struggles that happen in life? It is that at the end of the day, as we've already sung, all I have, all I am, is Christ. All I have is Him. Because at the end of the day, grace reigns. Jesus has triumphed over my trespasses The effect is that death no longer holds me. Sin no longer is my master. We'll look at that next week in Romans 6. It means that grace has changed everything and it reigns. And it's all because, all through and all for, this one whom we call Jesus Christ who paid it all so that grace could abound even greater than our sins. So the question is, are you in Adam? or are are you in christ do you know what it means for grace to reign do you know what it means to say all i have all i have is christ let's pray father would you um help us now as we listen to what it is that you want to say to us today from this text and how we could respond and acknowledge your reign over our lives and for brothers and sisters here today who are under a heavy weight wondering how in the world can I make it through a difficult marriage or broken relationships or disappointment in life or a job that feels like it's not very fulfilling, or kids that didn't turn out like we'd hoped, or any number of things, Lord, would you remind us that all we have is you, Christ, and if we have you, we have everything, because grace reigns. So when sin and death would tempt us to think there is no hope, would you anchor us back to the reality that Christ, in your triumph, in your triumph, you set in motion the reigning of grace. And so while we may not feel like that's true, at times we believe that it is because you've told us it's true. Thank you for this word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to end today by singing together. And um, so Nate's going to lead us as we sing together, All I have is Christ. Let's worship together.
0: I once was lost in the darkest night, you thought I knew the way, the sin that promised story life and led me to. is my life hallelujah all i have is christ hallelujah
1: jesus is my life amen would you stand Father in heaven, thank you that you have made it possible for Christ to be our life. And so today we leave this place under the banner and the hope that in the same way that death has reigned through sin, that now grace will reign through Christ. And we believe that, we cherish that, and we promise to live on that this week. So give us grace for difficult people, give us urgent mortification for sins that would bring us back to the realm of death. And Lord, give us hearts filled with worship and adoration because everything we have, we have because of Christ. So rain, O oh Lord, reign, we pray, in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming. God bless you.